Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. Tonight we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapters 29 and 30. Getting real close. Just four more chapters after tonight. Deuteronomy chapters 29 and 30. This is actually considered by some of the uh, theologians, the Bible scholars, as Moses' third address to Israel because of Deuteronomy 29, verse 1. It says, These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make to the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. And so this is the beginning of a new address to the nation of Israel. And last week we looked at, uh, and there's a little bit of that in here as well, but we looked at the blessing and cursing from last week, pointing out that in chapter 27, it said cursed is the one, so it referred to the individual, God specifically talking to individuals within the nation if they would go against the word of God. And then in chapter 28, God talking to the nation itself, both blessings and cursings, things that would happen to them. And we get into chapter 29, we realize that God knew, he knows all things, he's omniscient, uh, that they would walk away from him, that they would be blessed by him in the beginning, then walk away and ultimately go into captivity. And so we will even have uh, God foretelling their coming back to the land. And so not only, they haven't even entered the land yet, and God looking hundreds of years through the history, saying not only will you enter the land, conquer the land, be blessed there in the land, fall away from me, and uh, go into captivity from the farthest parts of the earth, that the Lord, when they repent, they would return to the land, and God again would greatly bless them. And tonight in chapters 29 and 30, I, I titled this Choosing Life because of chapter 30, because God would say, I have set before you both life and death, and choose life that you might live. And so that's a pretty uh, famous verse of Scripture where God is calling the people to choose life, and uh, it has been used for calling people to surrender their hearts to Jesus Christ as the Savior, the Lord and Savior of their life. It's also been used for the abortion. Um, I was going to say argument, but argument is not a good word for it. In fact, uh, with the elections yesterday, one of our conservative states, Ohio, voted that uh, abortion laws into their constitution. So, it has a strong foothold in our nation, and God's still crying to choose life, something that we as believers should do. So let's go ahead 
pray and we'll get into the teaching of God's word. Father, thank you so much for this night and for the worship you've already allowed us to partake in. And I pray, Lord, a blessing now upon your word. We ask, Father, that as we read through these things that you wanted the children of Israel to know before they entered into the promised land, Lord, that we could glean spiritual truths for our own life, for our own nation in these days that we find ourselves in. Father, help us to hear from your word, hear from your spirit, Lord. This evening we ask in the name of Jesus, amen. So often, and I think last week because I had almost 100 verses to read, I forgot to read the key verses. I always pick them out. And uh, this one is verse 4 of Deuteronomy chapter 29, a key verse for me. Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive or eyes to see or ears to hear to this very day. So God presents a dilemma to the children of Israel. They were unable to, even though they their eyes did see, and they saw the great miracles that took place in Egypt, and they saw how God cared for them, as he will argue here in this chapter, while they were in the wilderness, how God made them victorious over their enemies there in uh, the area of Moab. But though they saw it physically, they didn't perceive, they didn't have a spiritual understanding of all that God was doing. And we can't help but think of Jesus constantly saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, that um, we are in danger of these same things. A lot of times we see what's going on in our world today. We see great calamity happening throughout the year, but throughout the world, and maybe we don't perceive or rightly perceive exactly what God is up to and how close we are to the the last days and the second coming of Jesus Christ. So in this chapter, Moses reminds Israel of the many things that God had done from them, from bringing them out of Egypt to providing for them during the 40 years in the wilderness and giving them victory over their enemies. All this was done prior to entering into the promised land. They had actually seen with their eyes great trials, great signs, great wonders of the Lord, but their eye, their hearts did not perceive the things that the Lord was actually doing among them. So 1 through 4 tells us, These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. And so the covenant that he made there at Horeb takes us back to the Ten Commandments and all that took place uh, beginning with the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. But there was other things in chapter 21, 22. It went on to give Israel other commandments. So that was 40 years earlier. Now we go 40 years later, the second generation of Israel are preparing to enter into the promised land. Their parents had failed to completely obey the Lord. Now God makes a covenant with them separate from, not negating the covenant at Horeb, but in addition to. Now Moses called Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, 
the signs and those great wonders. Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive, eyes to see, ears to hear to this very day. Now, we understand that by this time, we can't know the number of the population, but everyone who was 20 years old and under lived through the 40 years of wilderness wanderings. And so many of these were children, but they did see many of these signs. Now they're, you know, if they were 20, now they're 60 years old. And uh, they're remembering back. And I, I don't know about you, but I, I have very early first memories uh, in my life from, I think from, I know for sure from four years old, maybe three years old. And, and the goofy thing is a lot of those early memories have to do with mechanical things. So God forms us. He knows us. He knew I would be a tradesman, work with my hands. And even as a young child, I was fascinated with mechanical things. And uh, so they may have been young, but it doesn't negate the things that they had seen, though they did not perceive at a young age. Or we might say at a young age, perhaps they had better perceived than their parents as adults. Sometimes children get it a lot easier than the uh, the stubborn adults who have seen so much in this world that their eyes have grown dim, their ears have grown dull to hear the truths of God. They had seen the everything from Moses' rod turning into a serpent and then uh, eating the serpents of the Pharaoh's servants who had changed their rods into serpents as well and then turning back into a rod again. And the ten plagues, that of the blood, uh, Nile being turned into blood, the first plague, the plague of frogs, the second plague, the plague of lice, the third plague, the fourth plague is that of flies, the fifth, that of a great pestilence, the sixth, that of boils, seven, that of hail, um, eight, plague of Locusts, number nine, of thick darkness, and number ten, the death of all the firstborn. Ten plagues that were more than just supernatural phenomena. It was God battling against the gods of Egypt, as the Word of God tells us in Scripture, that God, the creator of heaven, used these plagues to show Israel, to show Egypt, to show Pharaoh that there is no one like the Lord our God. And sadly, Israel did not perceive the things that God desired for them to understand. When he brought them out of the land of Egypt with a great power and a mighty hand. And then he moves on. Five and six, 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. Your sandals have not worn out on your feet. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine, nor similar drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. For 40 years, God provided for them, and part of that provision was just having their stuff last forever. I know it sounds like for fashionistas, this would be a horrible thing, that... um, you know, that 
dress you got 40 years ago still looks as if it was brand new 40 years later. And maybe there was a lot of uh, swap meets going on. And just that's how you got. There were new clothes because they never wore out. But you got new clothes by just trading with your neighbor. But even the what I see in verse 6, the bread and wine that they did not drink, the common foods that they were accustomed to uh, having, and eating bread and uh, drinking some type of wine, they didn't have these things. And yet God provided for them throughout the 40 years in the wilderness. God provided for them in Numbers 33, 5 through 49. Moses listed out 41 different campsites that they had as they roamed around the wilderness. And in chapter 21 of Numbers, there's other places where they camped as well. And yet during all that, God had blessed the work of their hands in a very great wilderness where even uh, they didn't have a lack for the normal sustenance like of that of bread and wine. They didn't even have that. And yet God still made sure that they lacked for nothing. He blessed them. In Deuteronomy, 7, Deuteronomy 2, 7, it says, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're trudging through this great wilderness these 40 years. The Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So they had seen the miracles in Egypt. They lived through 40 years of miraculous wilderness wandering where they did not lack anything. And God had given them victory in battle against Sion and Og. In verses 7 through 9, when they came to this place, Sion, king of Heshbon and Og, king of Bashan, came out against us to battle and we conquered them. We took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, to the Gadites, to the half-tribe of Manasseh. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. So God even made them victorious over their enemies. And this battle of Sion and Og, these two kings, it would be repeated I, I looked up how many times their names are mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, Sion was mentioned 37 times, Og 22 times. God kept referring back to these two great kings as one of those moments where Israel knew the hand of the Lord in that of victory in battle. In Psalm 135, 10 through 12, it says, He defeated many nations. He slew the mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kings of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his people. And because Yahweh had done all these things, he'd done the great and mighty signs and wonders in Egypt, brought them through the wilderness, gave them victory in battle, now Moses encourages the people in verse 9 to keep the word of this covenant, to do them that you may prosper in all that you do. In other words, Israel's prosperity was tied to their faithfulness to Yahweh. Israel's prosperity was tied to their faithfulness to Yahweh. 
Psalm 103, 17 and 18 says, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant and those who remember his commandments to do them. So not just having a head knowledge of God's word, but walking in obedience to the word of God. God will see that we prosper. Now, we don't believe in a a name-it-claim-it type ministry here, but we do believe that God cares for his people and that we should walk in obedience to the word of the Lord. So 10 through 13, we find that they had a witness of fulfilled promise. In verse 10, it says, And all of you stand here today before the Lord your God, your leaders, and your tribes, your elders, your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, and your wives, also the stranger who is in your camp, from the one who cuts the wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into covenant with the Lord your God to his oath, which the Lord your God makes with you today, that he may establish you today as a people for himself, that he may be God to you just as he has spoken to you, just as he has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. We first notice that even though Yahweh had made a covenant with Abraham and renewed that covenant, Abrahamic covenant with Isaac and Jacob. Now he calls for this new generation of Israelis to enter into a covenant with him. And this shows us that each generation must take responsibility to either walk in the ways of God or not. That we in each generation have a choice to either walk in the ways of God or not. Deuteronomy 28.9, the Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he swore to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. We Second, we notice that their covenant with Yahweh was not just for the Israelis, but it also mentioned their children and the strangers who were among them, those who cut their wood and those who drew their water. This really stood out to me because it reminded me of uh, back in Numbers 15, verses 15 and 16, that there shall be one ordinance for you of the assembly and for the stranger who dwells with you, an ordinance forever throughout all your generations as you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. One law, one custom shall be for you and one stranger for who dwells with you. So this just spoke to me at a level here in our country today where we have seen our open borders bring in thousands, sometimes um, several thousand a day, they estimate by the end of the current president's um, term in office, some 10 million people will come across our border. And this is an article just from four days ago that states at this time, this is somebody that's down at the border from the United States saying these days we are dealing with 120 nationalities and 60 different languages. And it's my fear that those who are illegally crossing 
our borders, instead of conforming to the nationalistic ways that we grew up with, that we're accustomed to here in the United States, that many of these foreigners will come in, change the very fabric of our nation, pulling us further away from God and Jesus Christ, not closer to the Lord. But in Israel, both Israeli and the strangers, God said there is one law, one custom. So if the strangers wanted to live among them, they had to adopt the laws of the Lord adopt the customs of the Lord. We know that they didn't always do this, and we have evidence of it in the Old Testament several times where foreigners would um, disrupt the community and disrupt the nation, but this is what God had desired for them. And I believe that it would be wise for us to be careful with the course and the direction of our own nation. 120 nationalities. There's only 195 countries in the world. And we have, so far, this is one of the numbers I pulled up today, of 120 of those countries finding their way through our southern borders. 14 through 18, I make this covenant, this oath, not with you alone, but with him who stands here, with us today before the Lord your God as well as with him who is not here with us today. So the covenant was for those who are present and for the next generation. Verse 16, For you know that we dwelt in the land of Egypt and that we came through the nations which you passed by and you saw their abominations, their idols, which were among them, wood and stone, silver and gold so that there may not be among you a man, a woman, a family, a tribe, whose heart turns away today from the Lord your God to go serve other gods of these nations, that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. So here the second generation of Israel that came out of Egypt, having seen the false gods there in Egypt, they grew up around them, but also the countries that they had interacted with for the last 40 years. They had seen their gods of wood, of stone, of silver and gold. And God said, this is not for you. That you are to make a covenant covenant with me, those who are present, and for the future generations. And I hope that we are able to continue to invest in future generations Ourselves, The future generations of worshipers have been something I've been saying uh, for a while here uh, because I'm getting older and I know my time is limited compared to what it had been. I don't feel as, well, I'm not as young as I was when I first stepped in this pulpit. Uh, yeah, some uh, 24 years ago. So it's been a while here but to prepare a future generation of worshipers, to help them take their stand in this ever-changing world that we find ourselves in. Psalm 145.4 tells us that one generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. So we're to be passing these things on. Otherwise, Moses warned Israel that if 
you begin to go after and serve other gods, there would be a root bearing bitterness or wormwood could better be translated as a fruit poisonous and bitter that would be set among your nation. Acts 8.23, Peter said to Simon the magician, I see that you're poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. And in Hebrews 12.15, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any roots of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, by this many became defiled. So those root of bitterness, those poisonous fruits of bitterness can be very devastating to families, to communities, to nations. So he gives a divine warning in verses 19 through 23. So it may not happen. When he hears the words of this curse, that he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, even though I follow the dictate of my heart. As though the drunkard could be included with the sober. So here, it's just someone, an individual within Israel, they hear the commandments of God, but they don't live by the commandments of God. And still they say, he blesses himself. So they're saying, it'll be cool. Everything will be all right. I'm going to have peace. I'm just going to do what I feel I should do. I'm not hurting anybody else. It doesn't hurt anybody else. And then he gives the example of a, a drunkard being included with the sober. <laughs> I was showing uh, my physical therapist. I probably will have my last physical therapy tomorrow. Um, I'm assuming I'll see the doctor one last time, physical therapist one last time. But my neck isn't broken anymore, so those are good things. But I've shown him a picture of years ago, and this began with me and David Fiorazzo uh, sharing photographs. He played uh, as a drummer in a band many years ago, so he sent a, a picture of his mullet-type hair on the drums. So I pulled up a picture of my uh, spiked hair, mullet, um, very cool-looking 28-year-old or whatever I was back in the day. And uh, I was showing the picture to my physical therapist, and he says, those eyes, we were at, Lily and I were at a party, but I'd never even thought about it because my eyes have never been stoned, never been wasted, except in that picture, it kind of looks like it. So he, the first thing he saw was my eyes, and I said, no, I have slits for eyes, so when I smile, they just kind of close down. So that has nothing to do with that. But a drunkard... I mean, you can tell the difference, someone sober or someone who is drunk. It, it should be that plain, that obvious. So verse 20, the Lord would not spare him, for then the anger of the Lord, his jealousy, would burn against that man, and every curse that is written in the book would settle on him. The Lord would blot out his name from under heaven. We think, well, that's, that's good, bad for the guy, but good for the nation. 
because the guy doesn't walk, want to walk in the ways of the Lord, thinks he's going to go his own way and God's going to bring judgment upon him. But notice what happens. It's not just that the guy is judged. In verse 21, the Lord would separate him from the tribes of Israel for adversity according to the curse of the covenant that are written in the book of the law so that coming generations of your children who raise up after you, the foreigner who comes from a far land would say, when it sees the plagues of that land. Now he's talking about Israel. He's talking about the land of Israel. So future generations, foreigners come and see Israel. And I read a quote from um, Mark Twain in last week's study. When he came to see the land of Israel in the late 1800s, he said it was a desolate place that basically no one would want to live. And that's what God is saying. So that coming generations of your children who raise up after you, foreigners who come from a foreign land, would say, when they see the plagues of that land, the sickness which the Lord has laid on it, the whole land is brimstone, salt, burning. It is not sown, nor does it bear, nor does any grass grow there, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah and Adama and Zeboim which the Lord overthrew in his anger and his wrath. So here we have an individual. It begins with an individual. He's aware of the curses and the blessings of God. He decides, I'm going to bless myself. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to disobey the commandments of the Lord. And yet Yahweh not only ends up pouring out his wrath upon the individual, but by verses 22 and 23, we find that the entire land had walked away from the Lord and God brought wrath upon the whole nation. Now there's a great example of this in Judges chapter 17 and 18. In chapter 17, there was a man from the tribe of Ephraim. His name was Micah. And he had ripped off his mom. And this was just bizarre and mom says, oh, my, you know, my, it was like 1,100 pieces of silver or something like that. And it's like, my silver is gone. And the son said, oh, mom, it was me. I confess. She goes, oh, you're such a good boy. Here, here's some money. And so she rewards him for being a thief um, and for stealing from her. And he takes what she gives him and makes a household god for himself. He ultimately ended up hiring a Levite to be his priest. So that's Judges chapter 17 in a short little snippet. A guy ripped off his mom. His mom rewarded him for telling mom that I'm a thief and I stole your money. He took the reward and made gods of silver idols. And then he hired a Levite to be his priest. And then not long after that, Judges chapter 18, the tribe of Dan shows up. Not the whole tribe at this point. They had sent out a scouts group to look for a place because they did not like the allotment that God had given them. And I have to admit, Lily and I had visited in northern Israel where the tribe of Dan um, ended up. It is a gorgeous piece of land. It reminded me of the tropics of Hawaii. But that was not the land that God allotted for Dan. 
So they show up, and this fake priest blesses them. They end up finding this place and went back and got their people. Now the whole tribe is heading over to uh, slaughter the people of this land. And they stopped by Micah's house, and they took Micah's gods, and they took Micah's priests. And basically said, Micah, if you don't like it, we'll just kill you. And so Micah said, fine, take him. <laughs> so it goes from an individual to now a whole tribe. But that didn't finish it. We continue on. We discover after the time of the kings, when Israel, or not after the time of the kings, but during the time of the kings, uh, when the tribes separated and you had the ten northern tribes to the north and the two southern two tribes to the south. So the northern kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah is how they're described in Scripture. Well, the first king there in the northern kingdom of Israel decided that he couldn't allow his people to go to Jerusalem to worship God, so he set up altars one in Dan and one in Bethel. So that beautiful land that Dan found in northern Israel where they set up their apostate gods, now there was a fake temple and a golden calf set up to worship, saying these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. So what began with one person spread to a tribe that spread to the whole nation. The ten northern tribes went into captivity, but what impacted the ten northern tribes eventually got to the southern tribes until all of Israel went into captivity. All because everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Judges 17.6, Judges 21.25, twice repeated there. And we still have that issue. People doing what they think is right in their own eyes. And that's kind of how it began here. The guy knew the covenant of the Lord, and he said, I'm going to bless myself. I'm going to go my own way. And so all the nations, verse 24, would say, Why does the Lord done so to this land? What does the heat of this great anger mean? And the people would say, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went and they served other gods. They worshipped them, the gods which they did not know, and he had not given to them. Then the anger of the Lord arose against the land to bring on it every curse that was written in the book. And the Lord uprooted them from the land in anger, in wrath, in great indignation. He cast them into another land as it is to this day, the secret things. Verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those which have been revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So we'll come back to verse 29. So in this chapter, basically we have to remain faithful to the Lord God would mean prosperity for the children of Israel, but to turn away would mean adversity, curses, plagues, and the anger of the Lord being aroused against them. And in their disobedience, it would become a testimony to the other nations but not a good testimony, but one that brought shame upon the nation of Israel. 
And these things came upon Israel. And God basically foretelling the future. I mean, in a course of several hundred years, but still foretelling what would become the future of Israel itself. Because the Lord had not given them a heart to perceive, eyes to see, ears to hear to that very day. 29 verse 4. So they were ultimately unwilling to live according to the commandments of God and Israel had blinded themselves to the truth of God's word. And it was really a self-induced blindness so that even their prophets, their seers, no longer saw or spoke the truth of God's word. In Romans 11.8, Paul refers back to this, saying God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear to this very day. So Paul in Romans 11.8 is quoting from Deuteronomy 29 verse 4. So not only was it a key verse for me, but apparently Paul thought about this verse as well, saying this is going on to this very day. Israel became blind to God's truth, and that's something that we are all capable of doing. So the secret things, uh, Deuteronomy 29.29, very easy address to remember. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, and God is God, and there are things that he has not revealed to us. But the things that he has revealed to us, they've been given to us that we and our children could live by these things. So God is God. Our human minds could not comprehend the deep things of God. As Paul in Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. His ways are past finding out. On the other hand, God has revealed many things to us through his word, through the observable world around us. As it says in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. As it tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, and all scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the purpose of divine revelation is in order that we might do all the words of this law. For us today, it means that we might come into a relationship with Christ. And Israel, though, did not have hearts to perceive all that the Lord had done for them. And I fear that is the same thing that we can fall into, but many in our nation have fallen into. They do not have hearts that perceive all that God has done for them. So I compiled a prayer from Deuteronomy 29, verses 4, 19, and 29. I kind of wrote this out, so I'll read it for you. Lord, please give me a heart to perceive, and eyes to see, and ears to hear, all those things which you have revealed, so that I will remain faithful to you. 
May I never walk in the imagination of my heart, but take comfort in knowing that the secret things belong to you alone. Amen. May that be our prayer. Now, chapter 30. Key verse. And the Lord your God, verse 6, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So 1 through 6, now God, this is the same address. And in chapter 29, God went from, in the very opening verses, making a covenant with the second generation of Israel to their being cast out of the land and now they're in captivity somewhere and God now talks about when he brings them back. So 1 through 6, now it will come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you and you call them to mind among all those nations where the Lord your God drives you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity, have compassion on you, and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the furthest parts under the heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and you will prosper and multiply. He will prosper and multiply you more than your fathers, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So after the blessing and the cursing, which kind of takes us through, Joshua, Judges, the Kings, the Assyrian and Babylonian captivity to a time of Israel's restoration when they are uh, in captivity in foreign lands and yet the Word of God tells us that they return to the Lord. It doesn't say that they return to Israel because they're in foreign lands. They're servants of foreign kings. But in their heart, they return to God. They begin to obey his voice again. They begin to walk in the commandments of the Lord again. They begin to teach these things to their children. And they do so with all their heart and with all their soul. And God promises, I'll bring you back to the land. Take them from the captivity. Have compassion upon them. Bring them into the land to where they would be more productive and grow greater than even their fathers had grown before them. We find one of these prayers of a heart turning back to the Lord in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. Kind of a long prayer, but it's not the whole prayer. Um, I kind of shortened it. Well, I didn't shorten it much. But really to understand the hearts of someone who is in captivity, the confession that he makes toward the Lord, but the desire to see Israel once again. Nehemiah 1, 5 through 11, it says, I pray, O Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, 
Please let your ear be attentive, your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night. For the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word which you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me, keep my commandments and do them. Though some of you were cast to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather you from there. I will bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants, your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. So his prayer before the Lord, kind of laying out everything that we read here in these opening verses of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 6. And God saying, the sign of the covenant now, they had the sign of circumcision, which was an outward sign of their covenant with God, but now God said it's going to be an inward sign of circumcision. Again, Paul picks up on this in Romans 2, 28 and 29. He says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, one who is outwardly circumcised, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jewish one inwardly, the circumcision that is of the heart, in the spirit, not of the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So over time, the Jews came to believe that their fleshly circumcision, along with keeping the letter of the law, kept them in a right relationship with God. But Paul contended that a true Jew was those who have been circumcised in the heart, not with the outward evidence, but the inward working of God in their hearts. Colossians 2.11, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So 7 through 10, we find also the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies, on those who hate you, who persecute you. And you will again obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments, which I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abound in the work of your hand, in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, in the produce of your land for good. The Lord will again rejoice over you for good, as he rejoiced over your fathers, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which have written in the book of the law, and if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So once in the land, God promised that the curses that he had placed upon them would now be upon their enemies, those who hated them, those who persecuted them. 
because they were once again obeying the voice of the Lord their God. God made it conditional. He said, if you obey my voice, if you keep my commandments, by turning to the Lord with all their heart and soul, that he would bless them, that he would increase the work of their hands. He would increase the number of their children. I was looking at Israeli statistics today, and uh, they are have become very westernized, like us here in the United States, that... Um, Adults who marry, technically not many marry today, but those who are having children, you know, you need to at least to maintain a population, have at least two kids, and then to grow a population, have more than two kids. And we are at like one point, and Israel too, like at 1.7. They're not, not even maintaining our population. That's one of the arguments of the need for um, immigration is to keep increasing because we don't maintain our own population by our birth statistics. But here God said, I'll increase the number of your children, that of your livestock, that of your produce, the work of your hand. I will bless you if you walk in my commandments, my statutes, and turn to me with all your heart. And so, so Jeremiah, before they even went into captivity in Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14, kind of uh, talked about this. God saying, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive, to give you a future and a hope. As I was reading that prayer of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 1, 5 through 11. I was encouraged to hear the call for prayer that went out for Israel on Monday in Israel and many of the churches uh, throughout the world. A call for Israel to be praying to God. And we need that dependence. And I think sometimes we think we can do things, whether our nation's at war or not, and I believe we are in many ways, um, and if not, we may soon be. But we need that time of prayer. And our world has become more frightening than I could possibly ever remember in my lifetime. And I have been around for a little while now. But I do remember the first war that we had uh, in the Middle East. It went very quick. Um, I remember 9-11. I remember stock market crashes that devastated people, so much so that uh, hearing of people who were in the business jumping out of high-rises because they had lost everything. And our nation spinning down 
into a great recession. And we lived through these things. But it used to be when big events like this would happen, and maybe social media is kind of numbing everybody to everything, that there would be a rebound of attendance in church. 9-11 happened. We, it happened on a Tuesday. We were here that night praying as the church body. And I think many other churches were doing the same thing. But I don't see those rebounds anymore. We have calamity going on throughout our world, and we're trying to ignore it and act like it's not going to touch us. And yet it is touching us every day. So we need to call out to the Lord and realize that the Lord is near. 11 through 14, it says, For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. The word is very near you in your mouth and your heart that you may do it. So the commandment of God, what he was requiring of them, he said it's not too mysterious. And no one had to ascend into heaven to go fetch the word of God for them or go across the great sea to bring the word of God. Some of those great... uh, Greek mythology often has the hero uh, traversing a part across the sea or maybe some land to some great quest. God said, it's not like that. It's very near. Now, when I think about that, you don't have to send someone into heaven or have them go. We do know that one did not ascend into heaven, but descended first from heaven to bring God's covenant of peace to us. But even Paul picked up on this very passage in Romans 10, 6 through 8. Paul was a student of the word of God. He's quoting from Deuteronomy again. Romans 10, 6 through 8, he says, But the righteousness of faith speaks this way. And do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from heaven. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in that your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. So at this time, Paul is saying, you don't have to say someone would ascend from heaven because it would bring Christ down. Christ has already ascended into heaven after his death, burial, and resurrection. And when he comes again, he will come in great power and great glory. Or to say that someone had to go to the deepest part of the abyss because Christ has already resurrected from the grave. He's already done this. We call this the incarnation when Christ came and walked among us, both being fully God and fully man. He paid the price of our sin through his death, burial, and resurrection. 
and has now become the resurrection and the life. In John 11:25, that Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. The word is near, and Paul said that word is the word of faith which we preach. And he went on to say, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, there in Romans 10, verses 9, 10, 11, and 13, that salvation will be made available to you. And we close out with the call to choose life. See, I've sent before you both life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if you your heart turns away so that you do not hear and you are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you will surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go and to possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you both life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give them. Just as Israel, so it is with us today, that we each have a choice to choose between life and death, between blessing and cursing, between good and evil. And the Lord is calling us to choose life, not only for ourselves, but that we and our descendants may live. We must each realize that although our faith is personal, as we each one must come to the Lord Jesus Christ, the way we conduct ourselves in the world, it impacts the people around us. I'm so glad that my parents received Jesus as their Savior and had such a relationship with the Lord that Myself and my three sisters also came to faith. Many of our children are walking in faith. My Lily and I, our children, um, both walking in faith and their uh, children as well. That we watched it, passing it along from generation to generation. Maybe you're the beginning of that. Maybe you have no earthly family on this earth any longer, but you can still be that witness, that light to others who are around you. It's important how we live, how we conduct ourselves, that we choose life in order that both you and your descendants may live. And for us, Jesus is our life. Jesus said, as I read a moment ago, in John 11:25, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, though he may die, he will live. And we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that in you is life. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Uh,
Thank you for being with us tonight, or maybe you're watching it at another time. Maybe you're going to hear this at a much later date. May God bless you and keep you. May his face always shine upon you and give you peace. God bless.